0: like you already know where to go, and no, I'm not pulling a fast one on you, Uh, Romans chapter 1. Thank you, Daniel. I'm going to read the first seven verses this morning. Actually, yeah, the first seven verses. In in the Greek, it is one long verse, one long, very complicated verse, I might add, um, which would make sense. I think the first 11 verses in the book of Ephesians was one long, very complicated verse, and that is kind of the style of how Paul writes. But let's go ahead and jump into this. And uh, I would encourage you to read ahead, read behind. Um, it, it's... I was talking with somebody, it was a while back. I was talking with someone and, and, and they, they want to pick out verses and use them as proof texts for, for, for different beliefs that they have. And, and I, I told him it's always important that you have to read those verses within the context of the book. And, 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 so often it is, and that's why I like to back up, not only to, to, throw a curveball at phil but i like to back up because i think it's important to get context uh but for instance when we read romans chapter 8 it it really is in the context of what we're going to start reading in romans chapter 1 romans chapter 9 through 11 is the same way it's within the context of what um has already been written in the first chapter and so it is really with all the um books of the bible and so it's important to read that and um Boy, I, I, was, I did a lot of reading, and, and one of the commentators, and it was like, this is when I knew I had to be out of my mind to teach this book, because one of the commentators said, you can study this book for a lifetime and never completely get it. And um, I thought, boy, there's there's probably a lot of truth to that. Uh, but nonetheless, let's jump in and read the first seven verses, and then I'll backtrack this morning, just focusing on verse one. So it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations, for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we... Look at this wonderful, wonderful book. That you would give us insight into the human author, Paul. Who was a man that was greatly changed. Greatly converted by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear that which you would say to each of us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I'm not even going to get quite that far this morning. I do want to talk about Paul. And I'm probably going to do more background information on, on Wednesday on this. But, but Paul writes this book uh, probably somewhere between 54 and 58 AD. And it's, it's at an interesting time. It, he's primarily writing to... Gentiles. However, it it, it needs to be known and understood that there was in the city of Rome a significant Jewish population. And no doubt the church was probably part Gentile and part Jewish. And, And somewhere around 49 AD, Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome at that time, he he kicked a lot of the jews out of rome he just he, he, they were basically expelled from the city and remember this is at a time of 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 uh not only was it the roman empire but there was also this idea of city states and so they were like being uh kicked out of the country by being kicked out of the city he kicked out the jews and even in that time the romans did not differentiate that much between Jews and Christians. They saw Christians as part of a Jewish sect. So, right around 49 AD, Claudius kicks out the Jews. No doubt there's probably, the church is still existing, the church probably becomes primarily Gentile in nature. Uh, Right around 54 AD, Claudius dies, who takes over? Nero. Now, Nero initially was, uh, I'm almost hesitant to speak well of him. He was a halfway decent emperor at first. He lost his mind. He went mad, essentially. Uh, The early church used to refer to him as the beast, uh, and he does fit what... Uh, what we later read uh, in the book of Revelation, although Nero was, I believe, came before the book of Revelation was actually written. And when Nero first came to office around 54 AD, he invited all the Jews to come back, and many of them did. And uh, initially, he, he, he gave them, he actually gave them special privilege uh, for whatever reason. Um, and now, of course, that changed um, And he was, the the man was absolutely insane. And I don't want to go off on Nero. But what that did was you had a church that had been primary Jewish and Gentile. And they probably uh, worshipped in in more of a Jewish cultural fashion. And then for a few years, most of the Jews are gone. Uh, The church is now being run by Gentiles. And therefore, the culture becomes different becomes very different now remember when they gathered what would they do on Sundays they they would meet on Sundays and they would meet all just about all day long and one of the main things that they would do prior to having uh, the Lord's Supper was they would have a meal together now do you see any problems with that with the way that Gentiles ate and the way that Jews ate Jews ate kosher Most of them continued to eat kosher after they became Christians. Gentiles never did eat kosher. Gentiles would have bacon for breakfast. To Jews, that was an abomination. Or for the meal, they would have bacon burgers with pepper jack cheese and fry sauce and tomatoes and grilled onions. Slightly toasted buns. I, um, Jews wouldn't eat that. But the Jews were expelled and, and, and so things changed in the church when they came back. Now Paul, when he's writing this letter, had never been to Rome. He had never been to Rome. He did not start the church in Rome. Is, and I'll get into this probably a little bit more on Wednesday. But it's believed that Peter started the church in Rome. Uh, That's why Rome became so preeminent because Peter was so preeminent among the apostles. So, he writes this book hoping that he's going to be there with them. Now, there are some commentators, and I find this interesting because they see a lot of correlations between Plato's book, The Republic, which was written some 400 years earlier, and Paul's book that he wrote to the Romans. Or Paul's letter that he wrote to the Romans. One of the primary themes in the book of Romans is, is justice. And how God defines justice. And the word, uh, the word group, uh, diaca, diaca, word group, which is diakonos and other, other forms of the word diaca, are all over the book of Romans. We often will read it in our English translations as righteousness. Justice is an interchangeable uh, uh, word in the English to to translate from that root word "daca. The book "The Republic," written by Plato was primarily written about justice, but it wasn't written from a godly perspective, and so there are commentators who believe that Paul is answering. Plato's book, The Republic, and so I may be going back and forth on that a little bit. I won't go, I don't want to teach us about Plato, so to speak, although I've I've read the book, took a class on it, it's fascinating. But Paul is giving a Christian answer to that. 400 years later, there is another Christian answer given to that, to the Republic, and that was a book called The City of God, written by none other than Augustine. Who wrote the book? Because the city of Rome had been sacked by the Visigoths, or Visigoths, excuse me. And so, justice is a, is a huge theme. Righteousness is a huge theme in the book of Romans, and and it is believed that, and we see this at the end, where where Paul tells the Romans that he is looking to to eventually go into Spain for some missionary work. And, and it's believed that part of his motive for writing this book was, was he was trying to establish a good theological base in the churches in Rome so that that could be his basically his home base as he began to work his missionary journeys out toward places like Spain. In other words, Paul has moved from Asia Minor, and now he's going more into Europe. And what a, what better of a place to establish his home base than the capital of uh, of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome? Paul is an interesting man because he grows up in the city of Tarsus, which is in an area called Cilicia. That's part of Asia Minor. Tarsus is a Roman city, and uh, it was it was a a city that uh, was on the coast, so it was a seaport. It was also a university city, so it was a university town. So it was like Eugene. When you think of Eugene, what do you think of? Starts with, did you say ouch? (laughs) Does it start with an L? Yeah. One of the characteristics of university towns is they tend to be a bit liberal. Because there's a lot of pluralism going on. In other words, there's many ideas. It is the same way for Seacoast. Now, this, this goes all the way back to into, into classical writing. That most Seacoast are, they tend to be a bit liberal. Why? Because people were coming and going. Of course, this is before the days of the internet. And this is before the days of airports. All right, you understand this. But you would have people coming and going from different parts of the known world. And when they came together, there would be an exchange of ideas. Pluralism. We can read about it, I think it's Acts 17, where Paul goes on uh, and he speaks to the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill in, in the city of Athens. So if you even think about it today, if you look at, I always get red and blue confused, but hopefully I'm going to get it right. If you look at the political map of the United States, both seacoasts are pretty blue, aren't they? It's a characteristic of, of when you have an ex, more of an exchange of ideas, there tends to be a, a liberalization, okay? And so Paul l- grew up in a very pluralistic Culture in Tarsus, we had all kinds of of cults that were there. Uh, one of the primary ones was the cult of hercules and and, and one of the ideas between, behind the uh, the cult of Hercules was a god that died and then rose from the dead, incidentally. So we had some of this background uh, growing up, obviously, Paul was incredibly. Well-educated. Because we we see in his writings, um, Paul in Acts 17, 20, uh, 28, he, he, he quotes Epimenides, which is a, a, a Greek poet. Uh, he also quotes, uh, 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 I have a hard time pronouncing this. I have to say it to myself first. He quotes Callimachus, in Titus chapter 1. In First Corinthians chapter 15, he quotes, he quotes from Menander. These were Greek uh, philosophers slash poets. And, and the reason why I even brought up the idea of the Republic is because the book The Republic that was written by Plato uh, right around uh, the 4th the century BC was something that was well known and well ingrained in the culture of Rome that was how they understood life that was how, now now there's some there's a lot of wheat and chaff more chaff than there is wheat in the republic obviously but that was that was the cultural mean of the time that's how they interpreted and understood things like politics that's how they understood uh uh different different ways of of how justice was administered that's how they even understood some of the of their divine figures although although uh one of the things about socrates who was Plato's teacher, was that Socrates, one of the reasons why he got the death sentence was because they accused him of what? Atheism. Why? Because he didn't believe in all those stupid mythological gods that the Greeks had, had conjured up. Now, important to remember, too, that Rome basically takes Greek mythology, Greek culture, Greek ideas, they give Latin names to it, and they call it Roman culture okay so when I say Greek or when I say Roman while we're studying this particular books when I'm talking about the culture I'm really talking about the Greek culture that the Romans basically adapted you could say hijacked and then turned into um, um, more of a Latin version now that Greek Latin split happens later much later because of the differences in culture, the differences in language, uh, the differences in geography, that's way beyond that, which what I want to talk about this morning. But Paul grows up in this incredible pluralistic culture on a seacoast, in a university town. Uh, and what's interesting about Paul, he tells us in Acts twenty-one thirty-nine, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia a citizen of no mean or no obscure city. He goes on again in the book of Acts chapter 22, where he says, indeed, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, but he was brought up in this city. What city is he talking about in Acts 22? He's talking about Jerusalem. I don't have time to go back and, and unpack this for you. But he said, I was brought up in this city, in the city of Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a revered rabbi of the time. And he was taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you are today. He's telling that to the Jews while he's on the temple mount um, because he had been arrested and he asked for permission to speak to the Jews in Hebrew. And when he started talking about uh, Jesus being, being divine, they basically, uh, he basically incited a riot and they were going to beat him because he had spoke to the Jews in Hebrew. The Romans were going to beat him because he was in custody because they wanted to know what he had said to those Jews to make them so upset because the Romans did not speak Hebrew. So they're trying to figure out, what in the world's going on? Why are all these Jews upset? Let's take the guy who's been speaking, we'll put him in the back, we'll beat on him for a while, and he'll confess, which is the way the Romans did things, of course. And, of course, that story is that he tells the commander that he is a Roman citizen, and the commander is so afraid, he's afraid for his job, because you did not bind a Roman citizen. You did not scourge a Roman citizen, And that was one of the things that Paul played out in his ministry was the fact that when he was in Tarsus, he also was born a Roman citizen. But even though he lived in a very pluralistic city, he studied in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a revered rabbi. And he was zealous toward God as you all are today. He was zealous toward God. So, one of the commentators, I thought this was really interesting, the way he described Paul, was he, he said basically he was a fanatical Jew. He was basically a fanatical Jew because he be, became a part of a group known as the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees in, the, uh, in Jewish culture? They were the religious traditionalists. Remember, we've seen this when we look through the Gospels, where you have the two main groups that opposed Jesus. You had the Pharisees, who were the, who, the conservatives, the traditionalists, and you had the Sadducees, who were the liberals. So I find it fascinating that Paul grew up in a very pluralistic environment. His father, he says, was a Pharisee. He, he lived under a strict uh, 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 teaching of of the law and he himself became a traditional Jew and and became a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees considered themselves traditionalists but in reality they were extremists. They were extremists. They would walk through the marketplace and remember then they didn't dress as we did today. They wore these robes, right? They would walk through the marketplace for an example and they would take their robe and they would wrap it tightly around them to make sure that their robe did not touch anyone else because it's possible, it's possible that their robe might have touched someone who was either unclean or even ceremonially unclean. And if that robe touched anyone who was unclean, it would make them unclean as well. They didn't want to touch people. They didn't want to connect with people. I find this to be fascinating. Why? Because Paul eventually is called to be the apostle to those dirty, tender for hell Gentiles. So he's well-educated. He, he He's read the poets. He's read the philosophers. He's well-versed in language but he's also a traditionalist to the extreme and that of being a Pharisee. He tells his story in the book of Acts chapter 22. We're going to go ahead and turn there and and probably spend uh, the rest of our time there. And I'm just going to read it through to you and then make some comments. Acts 22, beginning with verse 1. Sorry, Daniel. Now, just to kind of give you a little bit of a a hint, he is recounting his conversion experience that is recorded in Acts chapter 9. We won't take the time to to turn there and look at that. But in in Acts chapter 22 in verse 1, he's addressing the Jews. Remember I talked about how he's at the temple and he's speaking them in a Hebrew language? Well, this is the situation right here that we're going to look at. Actually, it tells us in in uh, in verse forty of chapter twenty one. I know you're not there, Phil. I'll just read it. You don't have to back up. So when he had given them uh, when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew language, saying, "Okay." So now he's here speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, and he says to them. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he had spoken to them in Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted the way. Now, the, the way is a name for, the early name for the Christians. I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, and also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed to you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And then a certain Ananias a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who were there, came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour I looked at him, and then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. So, Acts chapter 9 actually tells us that he's told that he will not only be a witness to all men, but he'll be a witness specifically to the Gentiles. I've read the story. Just a quick recap. He's on his way to Damascus. He has letters. He has authorization. He's been deputized by the, the elders. And who are the elders? It's the Sanhedrin the Sanhedrin, and also the high priest, he was deputized to go get these Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem where they would be either put in jail or put to death. So that was his mission. That was his zeal. I find it interesting that he uses that word zeal because it, it it's, it's, the word is, is consistent with, in the Greek that is, it's consistent with the group of uh, people that were known as the zealots, incidentally, Simon the zealot was one of the disciples, one of the apostles that is of jesus and and that this this political movement was was gaining more and more momentum uh, and it was based uh, on on the pharisees theology uh, of a sovereignty of God and a desire to do whatever it was necessary to kick out the Romans and to reestablish the, ruin, the, the reign of God in Judea. And, and so that was the fervor that was, was, was happening within the populace of, of Israel in that time. And, and uh, Paul uses this particular term. He's so zealous, he believes, for the things of God, That he takes people who have become born again of the spirit. And because of their belief in Jesus. He takes them and he has them either imprisoned. Or he has them put to death. One of the two. Now was that a misplaced zeal or what? No wonder that one commentator referred to him as a fanatical Jew. Makes a lot of sense to me. And to me, I'm fascinated with the blindness of believing that he's doing God's will when in reality he's persecuting. Jesus said on the road to Damascus, you are persecuting whom? Jesus. Persecuting him. So you have this, this person who is this great persecutor, and in another letter Paul refers to himself as a great blasphemer. who was a Pharisee, who consented, it tells us in the book of Acts, to the death of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And what does God do? What was going on? He's on the road to Damascus. We're, we're not told of the inner workings of the heart of Paul during that trip. But I have a sense that, that the Spirit of God was definitely speaking to him. But, but, but the Spirit of God intercedes upon him in such a miraculous way. By striking him blind. Because of a bright light. And he, but what was Paul's first response? who are you lord see there is a whole lot behind that statement because even in the roman empire at that particular time there was a mist what was a blasphemous belief that the emperors were in fact gods and they were referred to as lord which really gives greater context, I believe, to Romans chapter 10, which we'll get to in about, well, never mind. Anyway. Paul immediately knows he's met his match. And for all of his pride, for all of his zeal, for all of his, I'm supposing here, but I believe his arrogance that went along with it, when he is struck by the spirit of God, he immediately submits. And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus speaks to him and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And, and so he's told to go into Damascus. You'll be told what to do. And he immediately obeys. He had he. One of the things about Paul that I think we need to 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 grab a hold of is, is that the the uh, the drasticness. That's not a good word, is it? But I'm going to go with it. And the completeness of his conversion that happened at a moment. Now did he grow? Yeah, I mean we I don't have the time to to talk about his seasons of silence that he went through because uh he 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 be st- he was still zealous. But basically he was a pain in the backside to all of those in Jerusalem and they finally got him out of town and then there was peace in the churches. And he went through a season of silence for about Five to seven, seven to eleven years or so. When finally it was, um, it was Barnabas who went to Tarsus and found him and brought him to Syria to Antioch, which actually they weren't too far away. Antioch of Syria. But his conversion was almost. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know of anybody who has had that full of a conversion. He gets blinded by the light. He immediately asks, who are you, Lord? He is submitting. Instead of calling Caesar Lord, now, of course, he was a Jew, so they would have never done that anyway, right? And he was a Pharisee, so they would not have done that anyway. They would have referred to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Lord. But is he still operating in that context? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. see he never threw away his Judaism. He understood that in Jesus it was completed. Does that make sense and so what 's funny to me and, and and this is this is how it is that uh, uh, The way that God does things to me, it's just so miraculous and it's so beyond my comprehension because he takes a guy who grows up in a very pluralistic environment, yet he's a hardcore fundamentalist, traditionalist Jew who has no use for Gentiles. And what does he do with him? Acts 9.15, again, don't don't bother to turn there. And The Lord says to him, You have been my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You notice who's first in that order? The Gentiles. That was his primary ministry. Of all people to be the one who would carry the message of the gospel. Now, he was not the first to do this. Peter was, by the way. It's in the book of Acts. But that was his primary ministry, was to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, whom, as a Pharisee, he probably hated. Don't dwell on this too long, but just to illustrate the point. We probably all have a people group, we'll go there, right? We'll call it that, that we probably don't care for. And imagine God calling you to carry the name of Jesus to that group of people. Talk about calling someone out of their comfort zone. But he was so well versed in the law. Matter of fact, Romans is is fascinating because it leans very heavily into Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament prophets. And we'll see that as we get into that. But he also understood Gentile cultural thinking because he had grown up in that. So here's a guy who has no use for Gentiles. As I said earlier, the, 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 the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, considered the Gentiles kindling for hell. And that was about what they were good for. Put them back in, the, get that fire, get it, get it nice and hot, throw a few more Gentiles in there. They were not the chosen people. But Paul apprehended what Jesus proclaimed so clearly when, he, clearly when he said God so loved the world that he gave us God only begotten son. God so loved the world. And he proves it by taking a person like Paul who, and his obedience, his obedience just strikes me because he, he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. And he's not like Moses, who, who uh, <clears throat> he's not like Moses, who argues with God. He just does it. Remember Moses at the burning bush? He wanted God to get somebody else. And and what I what what I find fascinating in, in the Book of Acts, after the first missionary journey, is run around Acts fifteen. Uh, right around uh, after the first missionary journey, he, he goes to Barnabas and he, he says to him, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of, of the Lord and see how they are doing. In other words, he had developed a heart of a concern for those churches that he had planted in Asia Minor, which were primarily uh, Gentile. There, yes, there were some Jews in those churches as well, but it was primarily Gentile. Now, <sighs> It wasn't like he could catch Uber to to Redmond and take a flight. How did he get there? He walked. (sighs) Would you walk to Ontario, Oregon just to check on the churches that you planted because you had a heart and a concern for them? You can't hitchhike. Sorry. But it was a good try. You know, this is the man who later, he says that the love of Christ constrains me or compels me. It moves me. It's my motive. He goes on and he tells the Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 11, verse 28, that, it, that when he's listing all these things that he has gone through and is suffering for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, besides all these other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. He's again referring to these Gentile churches that he's planted. That, in some way that uh, that that he is describing now he doesn't he doesn 't go into detail, but i but i I read this and I visualize he had those churches on his heart in the same way that the high priest had the twelve stones on the breastplate that he carried the nation of Israel on his heart. Paul had those people upon his heart again in Acts chapter nine. He says who are you Lord and the Lord says to him I am Jesus who you are persecuting it is hard to kick against the goads and then in Acts chapter 9 verse 6 he says he's trembling with, and he's astonished and he says Lord what do you want me to do he hasn't even gotten his eyesight back yet see that strikes me it's like He's on his way to go put some people and take them in chains and bring them back to Jerusalem and, <clears throat> and uh, they believe in this Jesus who the Jews considered to be a blasphemer, blasphemer, blasphemer. There we go. Third time's the charm. Don't laugh too much. Anyway, I need a drink of water. And he believed. They believed in Jesus, so he goes and he puts them in chains. And yet, when he encounters the living Lord, he first says, what is it that you want me to do? Now, I might have said, hey, do me a favor. Can I see again? And then once I had seen, I said, okay, now what do you want me to do? Right? Right? But the foremost thing on his mind was doing the will of God. Fulfilling the calling of God. No wonder he can say about himself, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The commitment is incredible. But even more so, the humility to allow himself to have such a commitment because of who he was and the experience of his life and the things that he had committed himself to. And so, this is the human author. Obviously, this is God-breathed. This, the Holy Spirit has written this book, but he writes it through a person, and he writes it through this wonderful person, Paul, who was called to bring the name of Jesus to a group of people that until he had been converted, he had absolutely no use for. That's a high calling and a high fulfillment. And so I would say, guys, let that be an encouragement to each one of us to walk in that same level of commitment and humility and a willingness to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul. And Lord, we also confess that it really is because of the work of your Spirit in him. And that you began a work in his life long ago before he ever knew you. And you equipped him through education and natural talents and even a zeal for you to serve you. Lord, we we recognize that you've been equipping us our entire life even possibly for this moment, possibly for this year. As we again confess and recognize that because of you we have the answer to that which is the ill of our culture. And so, Lord, we say to you this morning, what do you want us to do? And call us into that calling and equip us and enable us to fulfill that, that you would be glorified that you would be exalted, that we would let our light so shine before people that they would see our good works and that they would glorify you and not us. We ask, Lord, that you would continue that, continue to build us up in our most holy faith, that you would draw us even closer and give us even greater encounters with you that might move us, encourage us, and empower us to be the bearers of the name of Jesus into the Gentile world. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you guys. Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not try